0: This fall, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast Network. If you are a podcaster or avid listener, we invite you to contribute, too. We are looking for presentations on podcasting in the humanities in all shapes and forms, on audiences, teaching, learning, equity, accessibility, knowledge production, and everything else.
2: The symposium will be held entirely virtually on October 15 and 16, 2021. Find details about the Humanities Podcast Network, as well as our full call for contributors for the symposium at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org. We have with us today Oishani Sengupta, and we are talking about racial affect. Oyshani, before we go into our questions, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Oishani Sengupta. I'm a PhD candidate in English at the University of Rochester. I'm also newly minted project coordinator at the William Blake Archive from the Rochester side. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much, Sharonique. And I work on racial ethics in Victorian print culture particularly in the illustrated work of Dickens, Haggard, John Lockwood Kipling, and Rudyard Kipling.
2: What the heck is racial affect?
1: I came to the term racial affect in an attempt to understand how racism is felt. Over Mm. the last four years, right, we've been seeing a lot of extreme, angry, and stable feelings of negativity towards minoritized populations of various kinds, racial others in different cultures and societies across the world. And that has always informed the way I think about how Victorian readers conceptualized racial others through the representations that they encountered in print, sort of one of the main ways that they encountered people Racism functions very significantly in picture books, Uh kids' books, and in India, and in particularly in West Bengal, Sharnak, you will know that our schools would give us books by Haggard and Kipling to read, school prizes, right? And they inculcated some types of feelings within us, perhaps, towards the British colonial administrative hero figures versus towards the figures that they were trying to control, I tried to think through how readers living within a Victorian media culture would have internalized those through feelings. Mm. And so racial affect is a good way to understand that one man's racism looks very much like another man's racism. They're not individual reactions. They are collectively experienced structures that require constant repetition and reinforcement and group effort.
2: I'm wondering if you can give us an example from a really kind of popular text so that like everybody would know.
1: One of the standard examples to prove how racist Dickens was, which is something that one needs to prove from time to time is this particular essay that he wrote called the noble savage where he is expressing this horror this kind of emotional horror at zulu performers who are being staged at at a kind of extremely strange and weird racial exhibition in Hyde Park where certain African individuals are being asked to perform as Zulus and enact certain customs and protocols. And so Dickens sees that. In one moment, he is acknowledging that this is a performance, this is staged, and this is performed according to the conventions of Victorian tastes for what they want to see African people do. But on the other hand, he is horrified and disgusted and he wants to keep saying that these are not humans right and these individuals are a threat to culture and civilization why are we even looking at them why do british white people come and pay money to see this right and this is a cultural problem so dickens who is a very aware thinker about the dynamics of media is kind of showing his hand here where he is in the same moment demonstrating the kind of artifactness of this artifact and saying that you know he is ultimately a captive to it and he is unable to resist that pull on these stereotypical ways of thinking that he has already internalized and it's comfortable to to feel disgusted and to feel hate
2: right yeah with that in mind, how do we use? racial affect
1: and i think that has so many ways of thinking but i will start with the personal as critic as theorist as writer because racial affect as a theoretical frame, it unites the very individual, personal, private with the kind of large frames of discourse and geopolitics. And it tells us that the ways in which we feel are not necessarily our feelings. So if we have a kind of instant critical instinct and insight, to what extent is that I as critic, you know, my training, my method, my brilliance, and to what extent is it the forces of feeling within which I have been circulated through my positionalities, right? If you think about that, what history of Victorian studies can we chart based on the affective pressures and intensities of its critics? Elaine Friedgood's work on realism says the same thing, where she's arguing that the privileged category of the realist novel often reflects the Prejudices and interests of critics of Victorian studies and critics of the 19th century novel in the 20th century than it does the pressures of the literary text. The critical way into this, rather than sort of just reflecting on positionality, is I think one of the advantages is that racial affects, at least in the way that sort of David Dang and Shinny Han talk about it, and I'll gloss that in a second, allow us to understand larger frames of concepts like necropolitics and the intimacies of four continents play out at a very personal individual material historical level so that when we are taught that certain types of individuals must be dehumanized or cannot exist within the logic of the national state yeah how are individuals domesticated into believing that or feeling that that is right? Yeah. Thereby, in terms of Victorian studies, how are readers domesticated or domesticated perhaps is not necessarily the right metaphor, but perhaps it also is. Yeah. By domesticating, you attach yourself to certain comfortable things, right?
2: Yeah.
1: And how these comforts then necessitate that Indigenous individuals in another continent must be separated from their lands or their families or their children in certain ways.
2: Let me ask you my last question, which is how will racial affect or how will the concept of racial affect save the world?
1: I really think it can. I know that this is a very lovely question that you ask everyone. (laughs) I think that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I do think that understanding why we feel racist feelings can help us identify the ossified, calcified channels, which I think is very much the first step into ever undoing them if we have such hopes, right? Because it's the unthinking pattern following that we sometimes do. Just like, the automatic acceptance of, okay, this person is perhaps uninteresting or unintelligent or uninformed because we are picking up on sociocultural cues that we have been taught to implement ever since we were born. We learned that that is how value is distributed. And we learned how that is how People are, let's say, not dehumanized, but if I can put it that way, differently humanized or differentially humanized, perhaps, on a sort of hierarchical scale. And so I think racial affect in terms of our relationship to practiced negative feelings can help us identify the areas where we are ourselves trapped in these familiar logic yeah. Which is essential to any kind of unraveling, undoing, undisciplining that we might hope to do. I will give an example. For instance, one of the ways in which I think about racial affect is actually not at all in terms of race, but in terms of caste. Junaid Sheikh he makes explicit the kind of integral correlation of race and caste in India and how. These rhetorics have always been in conversation. If you want to understand a kind of articulated theory of caste in India, you do need to go back to these kind of Victorian anthropological documents that are all related to early racial taxonomic theories. And the way in which I understand it is where did I internalize casteism, right? Because if I have to accept that I have a particular caste identity, I have cultural capital within a certain social framework in India, by the logic of structural racism and structural casteism, first I have to acknowledge that it exists in me, even if I can't see it. And I think that's the test, right? You can't see it because you, if you thought you were subject to it, if it was that obvious, you would undo it, but it isn't. The separation of space, of touch, right? of food, this unspoken fabric of domestic texture that it's like a minefield. like if you see these movies where um, cat burglars need to like jump over lasers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing, right? Like casteist hierarchies are in our lives like those invisible lasers that you're always jumping through and yet only when that one button is pushed that you can see the whole fabric. These are all. This is all personal history, but also I think there is a practice of talking about your own history in response to geopolitical inequality. That is a practice that needs to be cultivated, and perhaps it doesn't show up in our dissertations, right? Perhaps it only shows up in our Twitter feeds once in a while. Yeah. But it lines every inch of what we write and who we are and who we hope to be, at least as scholars.
2: I, I think that's a great uh, culminating note that you have struck to talk about both you talk about so many things because you talk about racial affect as something which is a diagnostic you talk about something uh racial affect as something which is you know a collective structure of feeling that you that remains subterranean and then you read but also as something that you know scholars are implicated in and we have to be it's not a lesson but it's it is a lesson that you know we have to be when we write when we critique we have to be kind of critically aware of what we are feeling. That's, that's a great reminder. And thank you so much, Oshani, for that.
1: Thank you, Sharani. This was such a wonderful and generative conversation. And thank you for listening to High Theory.
2: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
0: Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio.
2: You can also find us at hightheory.net.
0: We hope you have a highly theoretical day.